everyone. Welcome back to the World Triathlon Edmonton Science and Triathlon Podcast. I am your host, João, and this is our second episode. And remember that this is part of our series of podcasts that will feature the speakers that we will present at our 2020 Science and Triathlon Conference that we are organizing in partnership with the University of Alberta. The online conference will happen as monthly seminars that we will start in September and that will go into 2021. And we have a fantastic lineup and the conference is free. So if you want more, re- more details on registration and you want more news on the conference, then please check our website, edmonton.triathlon.org. Make sure you give us a follow on social media as well. We are at WTS underline Edmonton for Twitter and Instagram. And we are on Facebook as World Triathlon Edmonton. Today we're going to be talking with John Kiley. John's career within sport has been relatively varied as he has experienced life as, as, as an international competitor, coach, sports scientist, and strength conditioning specialist. John has worked directly with the coaches of Olympic and world champions in three major sports, and he has coached a Paralympic track medalist and European champion, numerous combat sport athletes, and from a team sports perspective, John has also worked with some of the top football and rugby clubs in the UK. He has also worked as the head of strength and conditioning for UK athletics and still holds a position within the organization. From an academic perspective, John has a master's degree in strength and conditioning and is currently the senior, a senior lecturer in elite performance at the Institute of Coaching and Performance at the University of Central Lancashire. Recently, John has published a must-read paper on confronting inconvenient truths in our understanding of periodization. And if you haven't read it yet, check our show notes on our website. If you want to connect with him, make sure that you give him a follow on Twitter at Simply SportsSite. John's experience has allowed him to confront some well-accepted truths in sports science and has given him a greater understanding of what truly drives training adaptations, the importance of coach-athlete relationships for performance, and so much more. These are the topics that John's going to be covering on his presentation. And it's also the topic of our conversation today. So without further ado, let's get into the interview with John. And I hope you guys enjoyed this podcast episode. All right. Welcome, everyone. This is the second episode of our World Triathlon Edmonton podcast. Our guest today, as I, as I mentioned, is Dr. John Kiley, who will be presenting in September on our online conference along with Dr. Stephen Seiler. John, welcome to the show. Thank you so, thank you so much for taking the time to be here. No, uh, it's a pleasure. Thanks for the invitation. Starting to discuss a few of the, the topics that we're going to be mentioning today. In 2017, we, we had the Science and Triathlon Conference here in Edmonton. And one of the key themes that, uh, that came out of, of the conference is that it is necessary to make sure that practice in, in triathlon, not in triathlon, in any endurance sport or any, any training environment, is done upon appropriately applied and critically appraised knowledge rather than just conventional experience, conventional wisdom, anecdotal data, just doing more than this is the way that things have always been done. And you're well known for, uh, for going through a similar process and, and contesting, I want to say, a little bit of, of the views in, in the area of periodization. So could you talk a little bit more about how the process started for you? How did you get into studying periodization? What was your background by then? And, and most importantly, how and when did you start developing this, this critical view of it? Well, uh, I, I think it, it started in my own athletic life. I was a limited but hard training athlete, um, like many of us were once upon a time. And yeah, I devoured, absorbed all the periodization literature at the time. I guess this was kind of 
uh, early 90s. Um, and periodization was the gospel at the time. And, uh, you know, if you weren't following your favorite ex-Soviet template, you, you weren't trained properly. Uh, and I guess over time, I just, I just wondered about it so much as an athlete. Uh, and started reading more and more, and I wanted to believe that was the thing. I mean, I didn't set out to be disruptive in any way. I wanted to believe that training was as easily managed and as simply constructed as I was told. You know, it, I wanted to believe that it was a building block approach, that it was a, you know, a, a, a simple mechanical planning task. But it didn't turn out to be like that, and. I guess that paper, or the first paper I wrote in it, you know, it, it was probably 20 years in the making, 20 years of going around my head. 15 years ago, I was too embarrassed to say anything because I kind of felt like, if you've ever heard the, the story of the, the emperor's new clothes, you know, the emperor's naked, everyone is applauding his new clothes, and this little kid shouts, the emperor's naked. <laughs> that's, that's kind of the way it felt then. I, I'd read somewhere before I published that paper that, you know, the average academic paper gets seven readers. So I thought, okay, you know, if I'm embarrassed in front of seven readers, that's okay. <laughs> so, uh, so, so, yeah, so that's where that came out of. But I, I got to say, it's, it's, it's rooted in uh, my life as an athlete and, more importantly, my life as a coach, not in my life as an academic. I don't really think it is a scientific topic. It is way too complex for the very cumbersome, rudimentary ways we have of studying training. So for anyone to think they can figure out something as complicated as periodization through doing some you know, intervention designs, that, that's not going to happen. Um, so, so yeah, so I guess my perspective is from a coach, what can I do to best manage best deliver training program to optimally service the athletes I work with. All right. Join in, in that context then, how do you approach the your, your training program design or your or your training plans over over a longer period of time? Because you you alluded in, in in your paper you also mentioned that we we probably should move away from this hard set views on, on periodization and the specific models that we have, whether it's a linear, reverse, block periodization and so on. So how would you go about planning a, a training program? Okay, well, I, let me just start by saying it's important to note that all of those models that you've just mentioned, they're not, they're not based in evidence. They're based on opinion. And normally it's the, you know, it's the opinion of someone influential, and because they're influential and maybe they work with successful athletes, it becomes the fashion, but the only real we don't have much evidence that can tell us how to how to plan long-term training programs. We know a few basic things. We know that you don't want to do too much too soon. You've got to gradually build on because otherwise you get injured. We know that you need to balance work and recovery. We know that you need to balance monotony versus variation. In other words, I don't want to do too much of the same thing for too often, hitting the same structures the same way. But uh, you know, at the same time, if I 
if I have too much variation, then we don't really make any concrete gains in a specific attribute. So I think of the training process not so much as a set of rules, but a set of trade-offs and negotiations that the coach and the athlete or the athlete group need to work through in a, in a sensitive way. Because if it's not sensitive, that's when you're going to get injured, that's when you're going to get overtrained, that's when you're not going to get the type of results that you could get. Um, but the other thing to say there then is that's not much to go on. When you're sitting down with a blank piece of paper to construct a training program, that's not a lot to go on. Okay, you know, basically what I've just said is don't do anything stupid. <laughs> uh, but <laughs> Which is a great advice in itself. <laughs> Well, yeah, but I mean, I don't think it's original, <laughs> but uh, we do stupid things all the time. I, I spent a lot of time working in an elite track and field, and the amount of injuries you get, you know, after Christmas, or when there's a, okay, we're off base training now when we're into more uh, competition-specific training, and injuries spike. But yeah, you have a conversation with the coach, and everyone knows, well, don't make sudden change. Sudden changes. Is, uh, is, is kryptonite in, in terms of, of causing injury. So we need to, so there's things that we know are things that we say we know, and then there's things that we actually embed in our programs and sometimes they can be different. Uh, and certainly that would be one of the first, I, I guess, rules for me would be, if there is going to be sudden change, it needs to be really carefully justified like there would need to be some concrete performance benefits. And a lot of the time, unless somebody who's coming back from injury in a rush, it's hard to justify making those sudden type of changes. Anyway, I went off on a slight tangent from your, from your original question. When I sit down to plan, um, this isn't me trying to get out of jail on a direct question, but it is completely context dependent. Mm -hmm. I don't have a set of rules in my head. I don't have, well, first we do strength training or first we do our long, slow distance. I don't have that at all. I think it is much more a case of, okay, what is the specific situation we're in? Who are, who are the athletes? Um, what's their training base? Where are our peaks? All those basic uh, type of landmarks. Where are they? What are their weaknesses? What are the risks? I pretty much do a you know strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, threats mm -hmm. type analysis. Uh, again, depending on context, I would, uh, and maybe this is something we can talk about a little later on. But I would, I would certainly be of the school that would include the athlete uh, in the training design phase. Now. That if the athlete is of a young training age and not very experienced, that might just be at a very at a low level. But you'd like to think with an experienced international level athlete that that's an involved level. And if they've been working with you for a few years, then uh, then that is a very informed discussion. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think there's a lot of benefits to those type of discussions. Actually, I think there's huge benefits to those type of discussions, but and just looping this back to periodization. One of the cardinal sins of the original periodization literature and the way it's presented and the way it's still written about is that the athlete is completely excluded. 
from the planning process. Uh, athlete perspectives, opinions, prior histories are not factored into periodization. It's like, you know, it's like you bring your car to a mechanic and the mechanic mm -hmm. looks under the hood and tell you what's, tells you what's wrong and how you can fix it. But clearly, optimizing adaptation to support performance is not a mechanical problem like that. And if you don't have the athlete on board, if the athlete doesn't understand, if the athlete doesn't believe, if the athlete doesn't trust you and have faith in the program you've developed together, then you can produce all the fancy, shiny Excel sheets you want. But to me, it's, you know, fluff. That's, that's, that's a very interesting point because it's in a few conversations that I had with with some coaches, not just from Canada, but, but abroad as well. One point that they always bring up is, is that every time you try to get your coaching certification to be able to coach at a certain level, uh, one of the main requirements still is, you know, this, this need to present a yearly training plan or a periodization training plan for a athlete or a group of athletes. But it is one of the things that they always, they always bring up is just what you mentioned that there's there seems to be no place for for the athlete coach interaction or for considering the the athlete in that in that scenario so could you talk a little bit more about how we can integrate the athlete within this idea of how we're, we're planning our, our program moving forward you already hinted at this idea that the more experienced the athlete the athlete is probably the more the athlete should be should be participating in, in the development of this of this training program but could you expand on that a little bit? I think that, and again, this has been one of the failings of the conventional both periodization in the literature and periodization in coaching, uh, certification and education awards. We talk about periodization as if it's just this one big um, monumental thing, but if I'm working with one triathlete, it's completely different. You know, and we're in a coaching center. Uh, it's completely different than I'm working by distance with 30 different tri tri triathletes. Um, and I would think that part of the success of a program, which is what the plan should ultimately be about, we have focused exclusively on the numbers, sets, reps, distances, times, heart rates, yada, yada, yada. And we, I, we've done that at the expense of, okay, well, where is the athlete education here? If I want to have a conversation with an athlete this year, at the start of this se training season, am I going to have this same conversation with them next year? I want the conversation next year to be more informed, to be better. So I, as the coach, can extract better feedback from the athlete, and together then we can evolve the program in a progressive way. So I think, again, that old-style model where the coach acts as the, you know, the captain of the ship and you don't really need opinion, uh, I think that is a very, very flawed uh, for numerous reasons, not least of all. The athlete will respond and adapt better to training if they understand why they're doing what they're doing and why what they're doing will help them achieve what they want to do in the long term. And unless they have a straight line in their head, this training is good for me, 
I trust the coach that prescribed it. I know exactly what, what it should be doing and how I should feel when I'm doing it. And this is going to get me to there, with, with, which is my long-term ambition. That's what you want. If you have an athlete going out and saying, oh, you know, I hate this exercise and you know, my knee is always stiff the next day and I don't know why the coach is doing this. And the coach was out, you know, was, uh, didn't ask me or didn't, doesn't value my opinion. All those type of things. Again, not in a, any kind of fluffy, cuddly, let's be politically correct way, but in a fundamentally, how well do I respond to this mechanical load? They're, they're relevant, and they influence uh, they influence training adaptation as much, or at least in an inseparable way, to the actual mechanical load. Mm-hmm. Now, I think that's probably quite a a statement without backing it up. Um, so I, I, I can give you two, two quick examples without going into them in super depth. Uh, and one would be, let's take the phenomenon of stress. So we all have this broad concept of what stress is. It's some, some type of psychological, emotional disruption. All stress is, is a, your brain taking in some observation from the outside world and interpreting that observation as a threat. And that's what happens, you know, let's say you're in a race, you go off too hot, uh, all of a sudden you realize that and you start to panic. You know, I've gone out way, way, way too quick here and I've so much left and my competitors are wherever they're placed. And you kick off a stress reaction there, and that sets off anxiety, and all of a sudden you're in a vicious circle, and you're in a mm-hmm. spiral. Now, why stress is a good example is stress is an example that we all know it has all kinds of effects, from reducing your life expectancy to compromising how well you adapt to training, to increasing injury rates, to compromising how quickly you can rehab from those injuries. And that's a really clear example of how a non-physical factor can influence physical outcomes, physiological adaptations. Now, for an athlete, especially full-time athletes, Olympic season, World Championship, prior to World Championships, blah, 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 there is all kinds of stressors. We can't legitimately have a plan that doesn't factor those things in. We can't have a plan that's just a sequence of numbers and percentages and et cetera, et cetera, that can be meaningful without factoring in, well, actually, I need to provide some education for these coaches. I need to help manage. I need to help. give them the tools to manage their stress. We need to set up a training environment that is stress resilient and that helps foster and create stress resilient athletes. Now, okay, so that's... Um, that's stress. Other example, people who call, uh, listeners will have heard of placebo and nocebo mm-hmm. effects. Now, you know, commonly they're just taught of as uh, tricks. You know, you're told something is in is in a tablet and and it isn't, but you feel better. But again, it's it's actually a very similar phenomenon to stress. All it is is if you get the placebo 
from a, somebody in authority, a doctor in a white coat with a certificate and a warrant, you adjust your future outlook. Mm-hmm. All of a sudden, the future looks a bit brighter. So, what does that mean? Well, if the future looks a bit brighter, my body, my brain doesn't hang on to precious chemical resources as, as tightly because it feels that actually risk is after alleviating here so I can afford to I can afford to spend resources. I can afford to uh, release these chemicals. And it's a very natural process and it's it's um, it's something that happens all the time. It's never absent. We think placebo placebo controlled trials and did you have a placebo group? But placebo really is the mirror is the it's a phenomenon that's with us all the time. Every single training session you do is affected by what type of mood you walk into that training session in. It's affected by what you think of that training session. It's affected by did the coach sell the training session effectively? Do you know what you're doing and why you're doing it and how you how it will help you? And if you haven't uh, leveraged that, and I don't mean in any type of a uh, dishonest way because it doesn't need to be dishonest, they're just saying like this is what this training session is for, but if you haven't implanted that this is here for a reason and that reason is to help you achieve your long-term goals, if you haven't made that link then you're missing out the trick. And again what the periodization issue does is completely ignore those things, belief, expectation, trust, confidence, buy-in, sense of shared mission. So those two examples, stress and placebo, as you can see, they're, they're, they're mirror images of the same phenomenon. And that phenomenon is our brain is always on the lookout for signals from the outside world. Am I under threat or am I in a position where I can spend resources, I can invest in the future? And very subtle things influence us. There's been some research recently about simple things like uh, coaches' mood and how they influence performance. Coaches' facial expressions, like you know, non-verbal communications and how they influence mm-hmm. performance. And I'm not, you know, for me as a, like a 30-year coach at this stage, I, I'm not suggesting in any way that coaches should put on an act. I think it's more a call for coaches to be themselves, to be authentic, authentically themselves. You know, we're all in this because we love what we do. But I do think we need to pay attention to how we communicate, how we present, how we how we educate athletes. Not educating them to to get degrees or to do doctorates, but educating them from a training perspective, and educating them in how shared information, having a shared language between coach and athlete can lead to better decisions, can lead to more training adaptations, less risk, and you know, you hang around long enough and, and you, you, you see incidences where either the coach or the athlete are in a bad mood and they just spark off one another and there's a bad decision made and there's an injury or there's a setback or an athlete goes away stressed from a training session. Mm-hmm. And if you go away stressed from a training session, you have just screwed your, your physiological adaptation subsequent to that session. But we don't think of that. And one of the reasons we don't think of it is because 
we've had this paradigm where if you want to plan training, wrap it here it is wrapped up in a bowl with this concept called periodization. That's all you need to know. We don't need to necessarily think of the other stuff. But for me, it's like we need to think in that multidimensional, in a sense, way. It's like it isn't about what I think the best program is. It's what it's about what we as a as a collective or as a, a pair feel is the best program. And let's argue that out so we walk away with with confidence that this is the best. Mm -hmm. But also let's walk away with the full knowledge that planning for a year is, you know, you can plan extremely broadly for a year. Can you plan in detail? No, it's ridiculous to think that if you're working with any complex system that you can plan beyond a horizon of, you know, a couple of weeks realistically. And if you're working with an elite athlete at a high pressure time of season, hard training, high injury risk, well, it's ongoing negotiations, as you know yourself. It's it's constant information flow. And ideally what you want is an athlete that speaks your language, that you have shared language in terms of, I've been coaching you for five years. When I say this word, you know exactly what I mean, and I know exactly what you mean. So we are tuned in. Mm -hmm. And we need to work towards that, because if we don't start, to, if somebody new comes to your group and you don't start to work towards that destination, you never get there and you end up with a 35-year-old athlete who just can't express themselves in a way that is um, uh, informative. Mm -hmm. So that was quite a, a rant I went on there, so if you'd like to <laughs> realign me. That was fantastic. and it's. That idea of the coach-athlete relationship and, and the mood and the mental state and the emotional state when, when the athlete and the coach comes into the session is definitely something that I, I want to go back and, and dig a little bit deeper in that. But there's just just before we move to this to the coach's side of things, I was just, I'd just like to ask you, considering that triathlon is, well, age group triathletes usually compose the majority of the, of the athletes competing and, and training on a, on a regular basis, and that they not necessarily always have interactions with the coaches. They might be they might be self-coach or it might be an, an online coaching program or maybe it's one of those situations where they see the coach once or twice a week in that specific training session. And the age group triathlete is likely the one that is going to struggle the most with every other uh, stressor in life around them that is going to have some, some sort of negative carryover to their training program. How do you think that an age group triathlete that has to deal with everything that's going on in, in its life, plus five, six, eight, sometimes 10 sessions in a week, can shift their perception or can shift their mentality to uh, once they actually get into the training session and getting into the right, uh, right state of mind and making sure that, like you said, they don't, they don't leave their training session in a bad mood? Uh, do you think that this is a process that should be done for every session that they have on the week? Maybe age group triathletes should focus on those specific key sessions that they have, whether that's a, a longer bike ride on the weekend or an interval training session during the week, or how could age group triathletes manage this situation? Yeah, I mean, it's a great question. Um, and the obvious way to answer it is say, you know, well, do all these stress management techniques, do your mindfulness and do your walk in nature and do your breathing things and et cetera, et cetera. But that's, that's kind of just window dressing. I guess, yes, you need, to, you should have those things or experiment with those things. And then I think it's about adapting. I think two things. I think you need to 
formulate and adapt rituals and habits uh, that yeah that you can that you can stick to and the more you stick to them the more embedded they become now obviously you need to make sure they're positive habits be it you know training at regular times or whatever it might be um, I think that one of the things that we've lost sight of with all the kind of uh, cultural panic about stress is that stress isn't a bad thing. Stress is just a thing. Mm-hmm. Stress is, yes, it's the thing that will damage your health, but it's the thing that will save your life. It's the thing that will get you to perform, you know, your best performance is going to be because you have certain stress hormones circulating at a certain level and etc etc so stress primes you and actually some very interesting research just a couple of years ago and this is a slight by the way but i think it's relevant uh business executives 300 plus two groups of 160 odd um and they've all got 15 minute educational inputs on stress so both educational inputs were scientifically valid the information presented was totally correct but one of them was focused on the damaging aspects of stress mm-hmm. so stress long-term health stress that increases your heart rate you know etc etc it, it increases anxiety the other one 15 minutes factually correct but more on the theme of stress is enhancing it you know, focuses your attention uh, sharpens cognition then you put, you put all these 320 people into a, a stress test, which was um, a, a presentation, a public presentation, which is like a standard stress test. And you measure stress hormones coming out of it. And people who believed the stress was enhancing obviously performed better, but also had more favorable uh, stress profiles. Mm-hmm. The others didn't perform well, didn't take feedback well, which was an interesting thing, and had more negative stress hormones. Now that was uh, our stress profile. That was a simple 15 minute hit. Imagine the influence you have as a coach. If you were dealing with someone for five years, for 10 years, or whatever your contact is. Uh, and I think that, yes, in a way, this does put an extra burden on coaches. You know, coaches aren't the, aren't the mechanics. They're not just mm-hmm. the training prescribers. Coaches are inspirations and examples, and they have to carry themselves as such. And they, have, you know, to be a great coach, that's what you need to do. And you have to consciously communicate well. You have to uh, present well. You have to frame things appropriately. And coaching, when it's done at top level, is a performance. I'm not saying it's an act. I'm not saying it's a you're putting on a false persona. I'm saying you're, you know, you're being you, but it is being you at your best in terms of how you communicate. Um, so the original question. <laughs> we were talking about those uh, the age group triathletes and how they can develop this this environment around wherever they're going to be performing the training sessions. Thank you. So I think stress management techniques are useful, but they're a double-edged sword. And that is, for example, you know, obviously the past 10 years, uh, the proliferation of training trackers, sleep trackers, 
and there is now a phenomenon where people are getting stressed by their trackers mm -hmm. <laughs> because they're setting unrealistic goals. We're kind of losing sight of the fact that we're human and we've good days and bad days. And again, some of us have more, I, I guess you would say, more uh, slightly anxious type personalities, Absolutely. which I'm not saying is a bad thing. It's a, it's a good thing in, in other ways because it gets you to take care of business. But um, yeah, all of this stuff, it's very hard to give general rules. I think it needs to be personalized. I think that with all these new streams of data that we have access to, it is very much a double-edged sword. The most important thing is not your heart rate when you wake up. I would think what you need to do is tune into how do I normally feel, how do I feel. And I think it we don't have something that can measure how that deep sense of personal awareness and yeah okay i'm feeling okay now or i'm feeling a little bit off but you know what i'll give myself an extra five minutes warming up or i'll have it an extra spoon of coffee or and i guess this is the point of laboring towards very slowly and in a roundabout way you need to have some personalized strategies if for example it's the biggest race of your life and you have a really bad night's sleep, what do you do? Do you panic? Mm -hmm. Or do you just say, this is what I trained for? Triathlon is not for the soft. <laughs> it is not, you know, and I think we undervalue our resilience and we're nearly being conditioned to panic if anything is off by a few pips. You know, or mm -hmm. if, I, I didn't sleep my seven and a half hours in certain positions. Yeah, well, you know, screw that. You're an athlete who's been training hard for a substantial portion of your life. This is your day. Have a strategy to get your head in the right place. You can't. Don't feel sorry for yourself. Just get on with it and do it. And you know, I think this. I'm talking here about age group trials. Uh -huh. but this goes for this goes for elite as well. And I've been at major competitions, World Cups, Olympics, and you see this happen, you see people panic about things that are not panicable events, that should not be panicked about, because they've been conditioned to look at themselves as porcelain dolls, that everything has to be perfect before your performance. Mm -hmm. But that's not the way the world works. The only thing you need to be perfect is your attitude. And you develop that attitude by training, by I guess by having the thought in your head that all this training is serving a purpose, it is something that is meaningful to me, it is something that I am prepared to uh, go deep into myself to achieve, and I'm not going to let a bad night sleep, or a dicky tummy, or you know the fact that maybe there's stuff going on at home. All of that stuff gets parked at the gate of the, you know, at the call-up room or it gets parked at the gate of the training facility. And I have a strategy, be it some self-talk, some warm-up stuff, some it could be some mindfulness, some breathing techniques, but I have something that clears clears my head, mm -hmm. reminds me of what's important, remind me of what I'm here to do, remind me that this is important to me and I've dedicated a lot of time to this. And then, essentially, stop treating myself as if I am a a delicate little flower and 
acknowledge what I am. I'm a hard training, healthy human being who is extremely robust and resilient. Mm-hmm. That's sorry. That's a another <laughs> rant. <laughs> no, not a problem at all. That's that's a fantastic take. And it actually, it goes a little bit with, uh, with a previous conversation that I had with Dr. Seiler in terms of developing athletes that are durable or have a high durability that they can withstand all the sources of, of stress. And then the other very interesting point that you made is, is this idea that we, we rely on our gadgets way too much these days. And as you mentioned, how your, your mental and emotional states are quite important as, as key drivers of, of adaptations that you might get from your training sessions and how sometimes we look at our at our cell phones and it says like, well, well, our night of sleep wasn't necessarily perfect tonight. So, you know, when I go to my training session, I have I already go with the feeling that I'm not going to perform as well as I as I possibly can, and how that might actually uh, negatively influence your performance, even though there there might be nothing wrong in the in the actual background. But that brings me to to a very interesting point that you you were mentioning how we can how we can possibly monitor or measure this, our specific states when we come to training sessions and such. And one interesting question that came out of our conversation with Dr. Seiler yesterday is, if you as a, as a coach, as a coach or an athlete, if you could monitor anything and everything that you, that you wanted to, to make sure that you're adapting well to your training or to making sure that you're in the right state of mind for your training sessions, what would you monitor and why? So I'm gonna uh, I'm gonna cheat a little bit in this question. And no problem. If the question is it, you know, if you had, um, you know, if you could recruit NASA to <laughs> come up with to monitor this for me, I would say what I would prefer is a athlete and coach pair that have optimized their communication. I don't think there is going to be something that you can measure that is the, the golden measure for everyone. You will get some athletes, uh, and you always do, that are sensitive to some measures but not sensitive to other, other measures. And I would much prefer uh, an athlete and coach player that are tuned in. Now, tuned in doesn't mean that um, they have to necessarily always agree on things, or I'm not talking about any kind of, uh, kind of coach paradise type thing, but just that there is a, an honesty and an awareness and that coach and athlete are well calibrated. And I would trust, if I had an athlete and I felt that you know, they're well calibrated, that there can be a conversation that can give me more than any measure. Now, people are, you know, we're all, we all want to put a number in something because it's definite. But when you're dealing with complex systems like human beings, that definite, that definitiveness is an illusion. Mm-hmm. You know, and it doesn't matter. I mean, my my calf might be perfect today, however you want to measure its function. My hormones may be perfect today, however you want to mention their measure their function. My heart rate might be perfect, but there's something, there's some nagging doubt in my head that the first sign of challenge within the race, I'm going to explode and I'm going to go into an anxiety cycle. And there's always going to be some aspect of performance that you can't measure and you're not going to be able to get a grip on because multiple things, it's a confluence of multiple streams that lead to you know, optimal athletic performance. So no, I, I, I'd kind of be happy if you had enough time with the athlete that you should develop the optimal measure. And that measure really is communication between 
you and the athlete and well calibrated communication. So, yeah, I, I, I don't see anyone making a fortune uh, taking that and turning it into a device but, uh, or, or putting it on a watch. But that would be my answer. That's a good take because it, it also agrees with something that, that Dr. Seiler said that the coach's job is it's safe for the for the foreseeable future as, as long as the coach is actually a good coach, meaning that it has good interaction and communication with the athletes and can be can be specific with the information that is trying to convey and the training program and, and so on. John, if you allow me just one more question just so that we're we're respectful of your time. In terms of practical applications, how do you see what will be your, your top three things that a coach can actually do to to foster this environment, to make sure that the communication is solid. When do you see these moments happening? Would you, would you maybe have you know a couple of sessions with your with your athletes where maybe the session itself it's it's not a, a, a physical training, but that you you bring your athletes to to a classroom or to a different environment where you just get to talk about hey this is your training program, this is what we're trying to build, this is the importance of these sessions. I've seen this happen, or I've seen this being done with youth athletes, but I, I'm not 100% aware of this happening with elite-level athletes. How, if you were a coach, how would you make sure that you could create this environment and implement this environment with your athletes? Yeah, um, that's another great question. I, and I think, and again, I'm not trying to get out of jail with this, but it's context-specific. I mean, let me give you an example. Let's say you are working with multiple athletes let's say 40 age groupers mm-hmm. and most of it is online. I think what you need to do there is just come up with a philosophy that's appropriate to scale. So in other words, if I'm working with you and you are my sole focus, then we can have a completely different system. We can have regular communication. We don't want to communicate too much because that's going to be a bit of a stress and your head will explode after a while. So we want to work out, okay, you know, once a week, twice a week, we're going to have a conversation about this. It's 10 minutes long, and we get into routine and the ritual of that. And that's our opportunity to, you know, I was really pissed off with you uh, on Tuesday because, or the coach isn't happy, you know, as, as a coach, you, you're not happy with something the athlete did. And it gives you that opportunity to vent, recalibrate, park any irritation or grudge, uh, sort out training for the coming few days uh, and go home. Mm-hmm. Now, you can't do that if you were training multiple people, but what you can do is adapt it to scale. So, for example, if I'm working with 40 people online, it can be I'm going to put together a 10 minute uh, video and I'll send it to you all, and it's just my rationale of why we're doing what we're doing. Mm-hmm. This might not be appropriate to all of you. But what I do want from you is come back to me with a couple of questions. And you might, you might set them a challenge like that. What do you think won't work here or won't fit in with you and why? This isn't the coach bending over backwards to keep an athlete happy. This is nothing about keeping someone mm-hmm. happy or being happy, happy, smiley all the time. This is about you as a coach trying to access the critical information you don't have. And that information is how the athlete feels about a certain type of training. So how do you access that? The other obvious realization as coaches is, you know, again, and this is something that 
the conventional periodization literature was very poor at it, presented things as completed. This is the best answer because, as anyone who's spent any time in the trenches and coaching knows, we know very little. We're kind of, you know, we're, we're wrestling with a lot of unknowns here. The more we sit on our own without running our ideas past people, you know, be it other coaches and athletes, the more we're inclined to go into this kind of cycle of confirmation bias and embed our beliefs and become really overconfident. And overconfidence is absolute kryptonite for coaching decision making. Mm -hmm. So I think that acknowledging that and saying, well, I don't have all the answers. Uh, collective answers sometimes will be better than my individual answer. How can I harness the, the wisdom of the crowd in a sense with the coaching group I work with? Uh, now, I realize I'm not giving a clear, direct answer to your question. So let me uh, go back and say that if I feel that, okay, well, the, co the athlete to optimally adapt to training needs to understand and have faith in the training. I need to do something to remediate that, to make sure that they do understand it. Mm -hmm. They do have the opportunity to question it. So the end result is that they have faith in what they're doing. And you can do that any way that's appropriate. If you work with 300 university athletes, it's going to be small. It might be a presentation with some questions once a year or twice every, once every six months. But you're moving towards a solution. Mm -hmm. You're making, you're shaving off a percentage point every single time. Working one-on-one -on -one with an elite athlete, different kettle of fish, different set of different structure. The other thing then that, that I've talked about here is that the importance, the, the criticality of athlete faith and trust in the program. And I think that that's something that, again, we don't spend enough time ensuring and I think that giving the athlete the opportunity to uh, to comment, to criticize, to critique the program is uh -huh. is really important. Obviously, the coach has to do that in a way that isn't, well, I really don't know what I'm doing, so what do you think? It needs to be in a way that is, um, I, I think acknowledging some vulnerability to an athlete is a good thing a lot of the time, uh, not all the time. But a lot of the time, and I think um, it's the very hard thing, as, as you can tell, I'm kind of struggling to give direct answers here because a lot of the answers are, well, you know, it depends on the context. But as coaches, we need to understand that it depends on the context, and mm -hmm. we need to understand that, well, it's not just the amount of training they do, it's the condition they're rocked up to training, how they feel about the session, you know, how, how they feel as regard, you know, what their stress levels are, how their moods are. It's all those things um, that dictate the uh, adaptive response out the other end. It's not just that they went through the uh, mechanical motions. So you, you asked a simple question at the start of this. <laughs> I think as concrete recommendations, I would focus less on plans and more on processes. Where processes is, when do I get to sit down and talk to this athlete for five minutes about how the week went? Okay, maybe that's the time to fill in the detail on next week's plan. Mm -hmm. uh, as another practical take-home, I would say that the, this kind of, uh, and really I think what periodization is essentially is a stress management tool for coaches. It's a way for coaches to say, oh, I have a plan. So that's squared away. 
yeah, but it's not. It is just to reduce your own anxiety levels. Uh, and that's not something we should do. We should embrace the fact that this is a volatile, unpredictable, complex environment. I'm never going to have it all figured out. I'm never going to have it all squared away. I need to be sharp and aware uh, and tuned in and calibrated all the time. Um, I think we need to pay attention to how we present and how we communicate. We need to be very careful about that. And again, the placebo research is, is so powerful in driving that point home. And one interesting line of uh, evidence coming out of the placebo research is that nocebo, the opposite of placebo, so when you feel worse after mm -hmm. you get a, let's say, a dummy pill, uh, is disproportionately strong compared to placebo. So a bad word from a coach before an event can have more of a damaging effect than a good word from a coach before an event. Uh -huh. uh, and I think that's important. One of the things we haven't mentioned here, but it, it, it kind of, it does pull together some thoughts is that uh, for me, there's a coaching mindset. If I'm going to coach them, there's a specific uh, standard that I hold myself to. And I think this concept of mindset in terms of how I approach this particular task, the coaching task, or for the athlete, the athletic mindset, how I approach this task, it's very important. I think the coach is the primary shaper of athletic mindsets, where a mindset is really your set of beliefs and expectations and behaviors around performance related, you know, be it training or competition. And we underestimate how powerful those things are. And, you know, I, I guess this is an example of uh, when I said a, a few minutes ago about, you know, um, the dangers of making athletes overreactive and oversensitive and mm -hmm. overstressed about things that are, you know, maybe don't necessarily matter. We need to breed tough, resilient athletes. Uh, and we don't do that by not exposing them to stress. You, you make someone stress resilient by exposing them to stress and showing them, showing them that they can handle it, that they are up to, the, to this task, that this is their job, mm -hmm. uh, you know, and, and they can do it. And, you know, you see it with all the great athletes, at least that I've worked with, that's what they have. You know, they have learned to trust themselves. They have learned to not rely on gimmicks or gadgets or gizmos or new techniques. And the, the last one I was going to say was, yeah, it, it's understanding maybe the expanded role of the coach that all of this line of reasoning suggests. The, the coach has far more influence than we conventionally think. And in a sense, that puts more pressure on the coach. The coach has to has to be, you know, the font of all knowledge, mm -hmm. an inspiration, a guide, a counselor, as well as just a training planner. Uh, and I think that this concept that we had, and it is changing, that the plan is the centerpiece of the training, you know, the training season. That's a that's an old concept. I think that 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 needs to that needs to be put down. That someone needs to um, uh, humanely anesthetize or euthanize. That's that's a fantastic a fantastic take. And just so that we're that we're respectful of, of your time, we could dig deeper 
into into this topic for for another hour or so. So I guess we're gonna we're gonna have to ask the listeners to tune into your presentation in September. So John, just just so that I can that I can let you go. One of the key things that we're that we're trying to do with with the conference and that was done in 2017 is to try to understand how or what the future of the sports is going to look like. And you already hinted a little bit on on where you see the shifting or where we where coaches need to do moving forward to make sure that we that we optimize our, our training plans and our programs uh, and our adaptations and so on. But where do you see the future of the sport or where do you see the sport going in the next couple of Olympic cycles in the next few years in this specific topics that you're mentioning? Well, I think that uh, there's obviously going to be, and, and the trend at the moment is more technology. Machine learning will come in at some stage or make a greater impact at some stage. Uh, and you see that happening in, in some professional sports. Professional football, it's in some cases, is, is, is a good example. But that's a, there's a danger there. Uh, and it, clearly what's happening uh, in some do- domains is that we are substituting, uh, because we have lots of data, we think we don't have to think, mm-hmm. we're switching off our brains. And, you know, ultimately we're dealing with humans, we're not going to be able to, trans- to, to translate human performance in training, or how effective a training session was into a single number. So, I'm all for data, but it has to be contextualized and framed and understood for what it was, for what it is, and you know, at the moment, what we have is lots and lots of information, and nobody really translating that information into well, what does this actually mean? And we have people tracking, you know, all kinds of things without necessarily having a good handle on what it means. Mm-hmm. Now, I am not against data collection at all. I'm absolutely pro data collection, but there needs to be an acknowledgement that we can't collect data on everything, and some of the most important things we can't collect data on, and it's just not getting uh, sidetracked, looking at numbers when there's more important things. And I'm not, again, uh, I know I'm a broken record here, I'm not promoting any type of uh, you know, hug your athlete initiative. Uh-huh. I'm not talking about easy conversations or trying to be friends or anything like that. I'm talking about shared information, shared information, shared insightful information, education, and then coming to what seems like the best possible conclusion based on a full presentation of information that isn't just, you know, numbers. Thank you so much for that for that take. We're getting close to one hour here. So, John, I'm going to thank you so much for taking the time to to come talk to us today. We're very excited for your for your presentation in in September. And if you have any any final final takes that you that you want to talk about or anything else that you that you want to mention, it's it's on you. Yeah, well, I guess um, uh, and I know we we kind of went around the houses. Um, in, in that conversation, I guess if I was to summarize it, it would just be our conventional ways of planning and all the different periodization methods you mentioned at the start, they're all fine 
as long as they're understood in context. Mm -hmm. These were people's best guesses based on very, very, very little evidence. Um, but by all means, if you, and most of us have a sense of, well, this program works in this context, go with that program. There's nothing wrong with having a program that you believe in or have faith in. It is just put the processes in place around that. Where, and those processes, I think there should be education stuff, there should be stress management stuff, there should be exposure to stress. Uh, and you know multiple forms of stress there should be uh, and there should be some consideration of communication and how you communicate and when you communicate and not leaving it to chance and I think uh, rituals and routines are something that can be very effective with athletes in other words uh, you know something that we talk at this time mm -hmm. We, we arrive to training at this time and this is what you do before warm-up. Those type of initiatives over time, I think, uh, really add up and, and have a very positive long-term outcome. Fantastic. John, thank you so much for, for your time today. And uh, like I just mentioned, we're, we're very excited to, to dig deeper into, into these topics and on your presentation in September. Well, thank you very much. Uh, sorry if I talk too much. It's six o'clock here, so maybe too many coffees during the day. <laughs> no, no problem. Thanks so much. Have a great evening.